0: Father, just this week, as as I've interacted with several different men, I, I've been reminded of the fact that, uh, gosh, throughout the uh, seasons of our life, and and the, and we're kind of in a seasonal change. We don't get huge weather changes here, but we get we get a little wisp of it, and it's kind of fun when it happens, but. There are certainly uh, changes of the seasons in our lives. Uh, and oftentimes, Lord, in, in every season, and we look back and we see the different, not only seasons of our life, but we see the chapters of our lives. Here and there, we'll find ourselves in a very, very tight place where seemingly we are hemmed in and we're in trouble. And um, we're under great pressure, and we don't see a way. We don't see a way out. And those events keep us up at night, and they. It increases the acid in our digestive system. It just messes us up when we're in just a tight, tight place, and we don't see any possible exit. One of my favorite sections of the Psalms is 46 in verse 1 where it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. But I always remember that alternative translation in the margin of the New American Standard that simply says, God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. And I pray for that uh, young guy who emailed me. His email said 2.30 in the morning. He's in a tight place. There are other men who are following you. They're in a tight place. It's not all of us right now, but it's some of us. Oftentimes, Lord, we do everything we can do. But we get to a point where we are powerless. And as Jehoshaphat said in one of those situations in the Old Testament, he said, we are powerless, but our eyes are upon you. You are the God who makes a way where there is no way. You are the God who calls us to call upon you in the day of trouble. He said, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. We look back over our lives, we see the times we've been rescued. We see the times you've gotten us through and made a way of escape where five minutes before there was no way out. We are so thankful that you are a savior and you save us not only from our sin when we hear the gospel And the Spirit of God pulls us, and we respond and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. You save us. You give us eternal life, but you just keep on saving. How grateful we are to know you. We ask tonight that you would give us teachable hearts. Make us wise in the Scriptures. We want to live as wise men. We've all spent so much time living as unwise. Give us your wisdom tonight. Help us navigate the stretch of trail that we're on right now. This is new trail. We've never been on it. Uh, Whatever our age, we've never been this age before. If we're 45, we know what it is to be 40. But 45 is a new stretch. If we're 25, it's all new. We know what it is to be 20. We've never been 25. If it's 75, we've never been on this stretch before. So we need your wisdom. And throughout those different chapters of life, we can find ourselves in tight places. But thank you for saving us in the past and saving us just one more time. And then you'll save us just one more time after that. We honor your name tonight, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study, and the theme of this study uh, has been—well, to, to capture it in one word, it's been the word anchor. Um, we, we started off with the concept out of Deuteronomy 6, where Moses is addressing the men of Israel. They're going to go into the Promised Land after 40 years of wandering, and they have a shot at establishing a new civilization, if you will. Their fathers had failed. That's why they were wandering. And we've been over this numerous times, but just quick review. He says in Deuteronomy 6, now this is the statutes, the judgments, the commandments which the Lord your God. He's speaking of the Old Testament. Commandments, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you might do them in the land which you were going over to possess so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is clean. Fourteen, year, 14 times in Proverbs, it speaks of the fear of the Lord. Uh, the fear of the Lord is living in awe of God. And I think there's a lot more to it. But one other aspect, was I was reading Jerry Bridges, who was a great, writer, uh, one of his books on the fear of the Lord. And in there, Jerry's talking about there's an aspect of the fear of the Lord where you should really have a fear of offending him, of offending him. So often we think about offending, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to offend people. We don't, but we, do we think about offending the Lord? So, in Deuteronomy 6, he's talking to the men. Uh, The women are important, obviously. We thank God for our ladies. But God has called men to lead the family, and he's called men to lead the church. So, he says, now, this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord God has commanded me to teach you so that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess, so that you your son and your grandson three generations three links in a family chain in a family genealogy so we've been talking about anchoring our families in christ and we've been talking uh, over past weeks of being anchored in the love of god being anchored in the goodness of god uh, being anchored in the forgiveness of god tonight i want us to address um, being anchored in God's protection. Being anchored in God's protection. We're to anchor our families in Christ. Uh, Fathers are given the primary responsibility of anchoring their families. In the Scriptures, elders are to protect the flock. Each church is to have elders, and elders function, if you will, as a group of fathers. I just saw something this week. Uh, one of the largest churches in the country, one of the largest evangelical churches in the country was going through a pastoral change, and this is a church that has appointed women elders in the past, and in the new pastoral change, the new lead pastor they've appointed as a woman. And then they have a teaching pastor who's a guy. And, you know, I, I'm thinking, why don't you just follow what the Bible says? You don't need to be cool and hip and, and, and mess around with the text. God's called men to lead the church. We've got a culture full of feminized men, and what's needed The church is salt and light, and the church is a correction, and God gave some instructions, and I don't want to get too far off here, but I'll go off a little bit. And God says in 1 Timothy 2 that he does not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He's real clear. And some who don't like that say, well, that's cultural. Well, if you read it and read the ensuing verses, It's not cultural. He actually goes outside of culture back to creation, because God had a purpose in creating this male and female. It's not a put down on women. It's just that we have different roles and we have different responsibilities. And a pastor is to be a father. He's to be a shepherd. A shepherd is a father to a bunch of sheep. You can't get past the concept of fathering. It's everywhere in the Scriptures. So, elders, when they elder, they're fathering, they're overseeing the flock of God, and they are to protect, elders are to protect their flocks, shepherds are to protect their flocks, Uh, fathers are to protect, and grandfathers are to protect their families. So, tonight we want to look at the concept of being anchored in God's protection. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 19. We're going to break this down tonight into two parts. Last week, I used an outline with the uh, phrase of each major point, beginning with this phrase, thinking wisely. I want to use that again this week. Uh, Two points tonight. As we're thinking about being anchored in God's protection, the first thing in order to really ponder that, being anchored in God's protection, The first thing we have to do is think wisely about discernment. You say discernment. I'll show you how it ties in. Secondly, we need to, in order to be anchored in God's protection, we need to be thinking wisely about accountability. Again, I'll show you how that ties in in just a minute. But let's begin with Ephesians 19, verse 27. Uh, You know what? As soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. What I want to do, and let me explain that. (laughs) Obviously, we're not anchored in God's protection here tonight because I'm speaking heresy already. We want to go to Acts 19 because, and let me explain this a little further, because in Acts 19, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. Did I get myself off the hook there? Sort of, okay. All right, that was a close call. But I'm glad you guys are paying attention. Man, I mean, I haven't seen a reaction like that in quite a while. That was good. So we're going to go to Acts 19, and, and what's happening here is... Uh, it's, uh, I'm missing something here. 20. Right out of the box, is it 20? It's 20. Okay. I need to just stop and think. Did I did I take my hydrocortisone and my testosterone and my uh, I took the ginseng? I took that. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what I want. X 2017. Obviously, you did take your medication, <laughs> sir, and I'm thankful you did. Yeah. Uh, if you look at 2017, we're actually there now. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. He's going to say goodbye to these guys. And he starts laying out his heart to them. Not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to note verse 27. Paul says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. I taught you all the Scriptures. Now watch this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And From among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So he's warning them. Uh, You're responsible to oversee the flock. And I'm telling you guys, once I pull out of here, some savage wolves are going to come in. And they are going to try and undo everything that has been done. And so it's your job to protect. When I was, uh, this is 50 years ago, when I went off to college, and uh, I'd never, been a, never lived away from home before. It's usually how it works. But uh, our longtime pastor, after many, many years, uh, everybody knew him, loved him. He, he was a father figure. Well, he was going to retire, and he did. I go off, move away, go to college, and they begin the process of looking for a new pastor. They find a guy, very gifted, articulate, uh, good communicator, seems like a solid guy, Uh, sterling recommendations from his church and those who knew him, he comes out and uh, takes the pastorate. I met him just once or twice. My dad was on the board, along with some other men. It wasn't—he was going to bring one of his staff members. I think it was a youth pastor, but something occurred, and it didn't work out, so he came, and another youth pastor was put in place actually— before he came, because there was a good period of time in the transition and there was a strong youth ministry. So, anyway, he comes out and uh, everything's fine. When the man got up to preach, his wife would never look at him, she was always looking away. There's something wrong. Nobody knew what it was. But as months went by, some things began to come to the surface and the youth pastor began to see some things that nobody else was seeing, and and what was pointed out to the men on the board, including my dad, was that this man uh, this man was only a pastor, but he was a male prostitute. Can you believe that one? I think had applied, had called them about the position was very interested in the church, but it didn't take too long for things to come out. And suddenly, some things had to be dealt with as we discussed last week. Um, What did Paul say here in Acts 20? Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. For among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, they began to address it biblically, as we discussed last week. Matthew 18. Let's turn over there. Just by way of review. Uh, There is something in Scripture, and we discussed this last week, I'm just going to touch on it tonight, because some of you, just to, you know, just to review it. Church discipline is not pleasant, and it's not anything that anyone enjoys. But Jesus, who is head of the church, you ever hear somebody say, well, you know, I don't like what's going on in my church. Well, number one, it's not your church. It's his church. Jesus is head of the church. Now, he's a shepherd. He's the great shepherd. We are the sheep. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We're a part of the church, but the church doesn't belong to us. So, in Matthew 18, what do you do when sin occurs in the church? And this gets very dicey. But there is a formula, and we looked at other passages of Scripture last week. We'll touch on this one tonight. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Um, oftentimes what will happen is you'll know a guy, you've got a friendship with him, you go back a ways, um, you look out for each other, and you'll see something going on in his life because you care about the guy You ignore it. If you care about the guy, if you really care about him and you're concerned about him and you see he's getting pulled off, you got to go talk to him in private, just one-on-one. Other passages of Scripture, as you go and talk to him, you look to yourself, lest you too be tempted, Galatians 6. But you're not passive. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now, what's the point here? Do you want to condemn him? you want to embarrass the guy? you want to humiliate him? No, you want to restore him. You want to pull him back. You see? And hopefully, you see, when you get off, as we all do, he'll love you enough to help you get back because we're all prone to wander and leave the God we love, as the old hymn says. Isaiah 53, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. That doesn't cease after we come to know Christ. We tend to—we get curious. Oh, I think I'll check that out. Don't check that out. Flee flee immorality. So the first step, your brother sins, go to him in private, show him his fault. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Ah, but if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of every, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you love him enough that if he doesn't listen, you get two other guys and you're friends and you, you all care for the guy and love him and you go talk to him. Hey, man, we're concerned about you. What's going on? How can we help you? Let's talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know what? We got too many miles on the tires, not to be honest. We're going through life together. And again, what are you trying to do? You're trying to restore the guy. If you listen, Great. But if he doesn't listen, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now you've got to tell it to the church publicly. Um, Nobody wants to do this, but sometimes it has to be done. And the purpose of this, as we talked about last week, again, is not to humiliate someone or embarrass them. The purpose is to restore them. And as they're in the community and away from the Lord and not walking with the Lord, others in the body who know them can be aware of it and and minister as is appropriate as the Lord gives opportunity. Um, There's another step. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You put him out. Nobody wants to do this. But when you have a pastor who's living a double life of sexual immorality, you better do it. You better do it if you're in leadership in the church because, see, it's your responsibility. Not to look away, not to ignore. It's your responsibility to obey the Word of Christ who is the head of the church. We might get sued. You might get sued. What does that have to do with anything you obey oh you trust and obey interesting how sometimes we got to put our faith on the line isn't it it sure is so my father and the other guys on the board were starting this process and going through the process this man was uh defensive He was lying. He was deceitful. He started spreading things about the men on the board. Uh But they were going to follow the Scriptures, except for one man on the board who felt like the right thing to do was to side with the pastor. Now, you explain that to me. And he kind of let the pastor know what was going on before they actually talked to him. He thought it was the civil thing to do. That was the stupid thing to do, because this was serious. Oh, and then they were about to tell it to the church, but the nomination we were part of, the way they were set up government-wise is that the local church was not autonomous with just the elders leading the church, but there was a district council. There was a district office there was a district bureaucracy and they got wind of it and they stepped in and they squelched it and they covered it up and that's when my dad and two other men that I greatly admired and respected pulled out and that was the beginning of many days of woe for that church in fact another leader came in and there was also sexual immorality oh by the way the church that he came from in the midwest knew all about his immorality and they didn't say a word they just wanted to get rid of him how much blessing do you think god brought on their ministry i'm telling you he didn't bring any So what was I, 18 or 19 when that happened? Uh, 10 years later, 11 years later, I'm a rookie pastor, just a few miles up the road in another church. And uh, I was was young, and I was stupid. Uh, Because when you're a pastor at 27 or 28, That's what you are, even if you have a seminary degree. And your heart means well, but you don't have any experience. I had a situation one day where I got a phone call. I was just a young rookie pastor. Maybe I'd been there a year, year and a half, small little church. I got a phone call, and there's the gal at the desk. She said, Steve, I think you better talk. There's a young lady. She's hysterical. I said, Okay. And I, and she gets on, I said, yeah, Steve Ferrar." and said, Steve, Steve, this is, and gave me her name, and I could hardly make it out, and she said, Steve, and this gal's hysterical, and she said, can I, can God forgive me of any sin, can God forgive me of any sin, and I said, wait a minute, slow down here, just slow down, hold on, hold on, tell me who this is again, and she gave me her name, oh, I knew who it was, I'd known her since she was 12 years old, and she was now probably 19, um, I said, what's, what's going on, what's happening, can God, sure, God can forgive you of any sin. But, and she's just sobbing. I said, where are you? And she told me, I said, can you get down here to the office? And she said, I can't. I said, why don't you come on down? Can you get here by yourself? I can't. She's just sobbing. So 20 minutes later, here she is. Now let me back up a little bit. In our area, there was a church that had a booming youth ministry. Booming a few years prior, I had actually spoken at their weekly event. And the guy leading it was charismatic. He was winsome. He was smooth. He was, he was a gifted communicator. And they were just kids hanging off the rafters. <coughs> she comes in. I start talking to her. She can't even tell Can God forgive any sure. Absolutely he can. Absolutely. And she started calming down and I said, "So t- so tell me what's going on. What what started all this?" And she said, "I can't. I can't say. It. I can't say. It. I'm just so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed." And I said, "Well, can I ask you a couple of questions?" Oh, did I mention she was been a, was the new secretary for the guy who was the charismatic youth pastor. And had been for about a year. I said, so let me ask you this. Is, is this sin that you're so worried about, is it sexual in nature? I, says, I said, is it with someone who is married? Is it someone in ministry? And then I named the guy, and she just broke down. And as I asked her more questions, she would, it's just not me, she said. It's other girls in the group. It's actually, we've we've hired some youth interns. He's sleeping with their wives. He, he likes to meet us in the church baptistry when nobody's around. I said, okay. Now, I was young and stupid, but I knew enough to know this guy was a predator. So what do you do? So I got some more information from her. I got some more names from her. I did a little homework. He was gone. He was no longer there. He had gone to a national youth ministry because he was the up-and-comer, and uh, he was so gifted. What I did was I called the president of that ministry, who was a big, big, big-time youth minister. I'd actually heard him speak before six or 7,000 high school kids a few years before. And he went all over the country, and he was a charismatic guy and winsome, and he was just incredible. I called him. They're not a church. He was the only guy I knew, so I called him, and I told him who I was, and I said, listen, I got to tell you something that's very sad and tragic, but," and I laid it out for him. And uh, I said, I'm calling you first because this other guy? I'm going to call him next, but I want an agreement with you that if I fly down tomorrow, you guys will meet with me and you'll have him there. He said, okay. So then I get on the phone with the other guy, and I said, hey, the gig's up. I got names, I got dates, I got locations, and I'm coming down tomorrow, and I've already talked to your boss. We met the next day for several hours, and... um, It didn't seem to me this guy was a predator, a sexual predator. And I gave you an illustration of an occurrence last week that I had been involved in with another guy. But I remember what this guy, this gifted youth guy, You say, "Well, I'm just afraid I'm going to lose my ministry." I said, "You don't have a ministry. You're deceiving yourself. You have no ministry. Do you lead them to Christ and then you sleep with them? That's a ministry." And I didn't. You know, last week we talked what the Scripture says about repentance. There's a godly sorrow. It wasn't there. And his his boss was uncomfortable. I, couldn't, I didn't know him. I couldn't figure it out. But after several hours, I said, look, I've done what I think I'm supposed to do. I don't know your board member. I don't know anything. All I know is, and I looked at the head guy, and I said, I know you, and I'm asking you to take care of this with the board. He said, I will, absolutely, and we'll deal with it. I said, okay. So fast forward 10 years. Uh, I am uh, I'm flying into an airport guy picks me up uh, we're going to drive two hours to a big men's deal and this guy's solid the guy was picking me up and he's just solid guy's just solid in Christ he's had a great ministry over the years and we're pulling up and going into the mountains and we're talking he goes hey did you ever did you ever meet And he gives me a name, and it's the guy who was the head guy, you know, the top guy. I said, yeah, I I, I heard him speak once, and I was in a meeting with him once. He said, I just went to his funeral on Tuesday. I said, his funeral? I mean, what, was he 40? He said, early 40s. I said, heart attack? He said, Stevie died of AIDS. AIDS. Apparently, all these years, as he's ministered, he's been involved in homosexuality and recruiting young boys. (coughs) That's wicked. That's evil. And you got two guys partnering in ministry who are extremely gifted. And how many lives have they destroyed? You can't ignore that. You can't ignore it. A lot of churches, but a lot of churches do. Because you see, it's just... When all else fails, read the directions. What uh, what did Paul say to the Ephesian elders? When I depart, savage wolves will come in among you. And let me tell you, they're out there. They're out there. So, our first point tonight, we need to think wisely about discernment, about discernment. Turn with me, if you would. And the reason I'm going to do this, as you go to Hebrews 4, and I'm really, really hoping that's the right passage. <laughs> I'm hoping that it's the book of Hebrews, and I'm hoping it's chapter 4. We'll find out. We, uh, we live in a culture that says there is no right or wrong. And, it, and it's amazing quite frankly, how many Christians are in biblical, uh, are really in, uh, in biblical kindergarten or junior high school? Uh, because they're not in the book, because they're in churches that don't teach the book, but they give homilies and nice little, you know, nonsense stuff, no meat, just Gerber's baby food. But, but see, we've got to teach the whole counsel of God. Thankful that we're in a church where the whole counsel of God is taught. We have guys that visit from other churches. That's wonderful. Make sure you're in a church that teaches the whole counsel of God. And they don't gloss it over it or varnish or cut or delete. Because, you see, if you don't know the Word of God, it's impossible for you to have any discernment when it comes to good and evil. You can't discern between the two because the culture see we breathe in the oxygen of the culture we drink the kool-aid of the culture but there's no right or wrong don't judge me don't judge me don't judge me that's the mantra of this generation well jesus says to his church and we looked at this last week in first corinthians 5 those in the church we judge the man in first corinthians 5 living in sin with his father's wife Paul says, the the Gentiles, the pagans, don't even do that. Remove the wicked man from your midst. He goes on and says, what do we have to do with judging outsiders? We don't judge unbelievers. They're unbelievers. But those in the church, we judge. Yeah, because Jesus says so. There's a higher standard. But if you don't know the Scriptures and you're just in the culture... You see, the lines between good and evil are going to be blurred. You ever notice when they start a baseball game, man, that, that field is just perfectly chalked and it's just symmetrical, it's wonderful. The batter's box, everything. first guy in the batter's box, first guy, what does he do? He gets in there, first thing he does, he gets his in and then he starts, he starts blurring the lines. That's a lot of churches in America. They start blurring the line. Oh, no, women can be pastors. That's not a problem. Really? Read the text. Just read it. Why don't you do what it says? You don't have to be hip. You don't have to be relevant. Just do what Jesus says. Don't try to get around it. blurring the lines. Can't even see the batter's box, right? Look at Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God is the standard for the church. It's the word of Christ. It's the word of Jesus. And the more you know the word, think back to what Paul said to the elders at Ephesus. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The more I know the Bible, the more discernment I'm going to have, the more I'm going to be able to discern between good and evil. And, and both are in the church. The key is knowing the Scriptures. That's why we do a Bible study. That's why you're here. This is why we grieve as we look around at what's going on in the nation, because in our day. We take what is good and we call it bad. We take what is bad and the world calls it good. Different standard. So the way that we're able to think wisely about discernment is to know the Scriptures. Secondly, we need to think wisely about accountability. Accountability. And you've also got accountability right there in the same text, Hebrews 4. The Word of God, it, by the way, that's the standard between right and wrong. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, watch accountability coming next. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We will give an account. We will give an account for how we live. And nobody is exempt. Uh, back in the 90s when promise keepers were taken off and, and men's, you know, the stadiums were going and we'd get men's groups and we'd have men's accountability groups, uh, which was great and it's still going. It's wonderful. Uh, The best definition of accountability I ever heard came from Chuck Swindoll. And he must have, I, I think I heard him say this in the early 90s. Chuck said, accountability is a willingness to explain your actions. That's good. It's a willingness to explain your actions. It's not a defensiveness. It's not a rationalization of your actions. It's a willingness to explain your actions. Your wife should be able to ask you anything and you tell her the truth. Your son, your daughter, you know, oh yeah, let's get some guys together and have an accountability group. Fine. Make sure you got one at home. There ought to be accountability at home. There ought to be a willingness to explain. That can be really uncomfortable, but it's a road to safety. Safety. Uh, the enemy always tries to get a man and isolate him by himself. But when you're accountable, you're walking with others in Christ. Jesus didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together as is, is the habit of some, Hebrew says. We're in a body. We're to be in relationships with other believers, and we're to be, we're to have accountability. Uh, are, are you accountable to everybody about everything in your life? Um, I mean, honestly, it needs to be people that you know well and know you, and you look out for each other and you love each other. Now, that's where it starts. If you're a leader, your life is to be examined before you're put in leadership. It's very clear in the Scriptures. Accountability is a big deal when you're talking about God's protection because you see, follow this with me, all right. We're talking about anchored in God's protection. We said that elders are to protect their flocks. Grandfathers' fathers are to protect their families. All right, in order to protect, I have to be able to discern between what's good and what's evil. Do I not? Yeah. And then... I need to be accountable for my leadership. And when someone gets into sin and refuses to repent and refuses to turn and wants to continue in their sin and excuse it and rationalize it and slough it off and say, it's no big deal, that, 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 and then turn it on you, you got a problem. You got a big time problem because there's no accountability. But there is immediate accountability with with the Lord as men, as women. We're accountable to Jesus. Uh, What is that? It's pretty clear in verse 13. There's no creature hid from his sight. Let's turn to 3 John 9. Uh, Not the Gospel of John, but go go back towards the end of your Bible to Revelation. You'll find 1 John, 2 John and you'll find Third John, a very, very short little letter. This is a verse, uh, th- th- this is a letter about hospitality in the church, not hospitality that we think of, of having a potluck, but in the early church as they would send out missionaries. Uh, you know, they they didn't have Homewood, homewood Suites by Hilton. Uh, they didn't have Marriotts. They didn't have, what they had, uh, most inns were uh, brothels. You know what, it wasn't a, a place to be. So, there was a responsibility among the body of Christ that when missionaries went out to a certain area and there was a church, that those in the church would show hospitality. They'd take them in, they'd give them housing, they'd feed them, they'd meet their needs, like we do with family, when family comes into town. Uh, It it just had to be done that way because it was completely different than what we've got now. So hospitality was huge. And this is being addressed. If you look at verse 7, it actually begins in 5, but let me just pick it up in 7. For they went out for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Now, watch this. We're going to run into a guy who's evil, who's a leader in the church. I mean, this guy is evil. His name is Diotrephes. The Apostle John says, I wrote something in the church, but Diotrephes, by the way, that name means nourished by Zeus, a Greek god. He's certainly not nourished by Jesus, as you will see in a minute but he's a leader in the church. I wrote something in the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them. All right, right there, we got a problem. Because Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become the servant of all. But you see, Diotrephes, he loves to be first. He loves it. We all all like to be first, and we got to fight it off. Because, you see, if you're a man who's following Jesus, you're not there in your family. You're not there to be served. You're there to serve. That's our job. We're there to serve like Jesus served. But the Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, now watch this. Not only does he love to be first, but he does not accept what we say. This is the apostle John who was handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ and was used, along with other apostles, to complete the New Testament. He, he wrote the Word of God, and this guy refuses to get under the authority of the apostle or the Word of God. So you got a second problem here. He loves to be first, and he recognizes no authority except his own. For this reason, if I come... I will ignore what he has done in order to keep the peace and so that everyone can get along. That's in the Greek. That's not in the Greek. It's not even in the Spanish or the Portuguese. For this reason, if I come, I will, watch this, call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So if you want to show hospitality, this guy, Diotrephes, he's going to can you because he thinks the church belongs to him, but the church doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Jesus. And the apostle John is going to come into town and he's going to take this guy on. And he's not going to ignore it you're going to face it off and deal with it because it's a cancer in the body of christ and then he says this in verse 11 to show you just how serious this is and before i read 11 i i, I can't forget I, I want to give you a little more definition on that peace who loves to be first among them by the way There's a great Greek scholar who's with the Lord now, but uh, A.T. Robertson, he did a thing years ago called Word Pictures in the New Testament. I think that's it. I bought it in seminary years ago. It's just a great go-to Greek reference. You read A.T. Robertson on this? He tells a story about in the Southern Baptist denominational paper. I mean, this is like 70 years ago. He did a short article in the denominational paper on diatrophies. And 25 deacons across the country in different churches wrote in complaining that he was singling them out. (laughs) And they were greatly offended. (laughs) Daugherty's who loves to be first, one commentator has said that one who loves to be first is selfish, is self-centered, is self-seeking and self-promoting. That's evil. Note verse 11, brethren, uh, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, diatrophies, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God, does not know God. Demetrius, verse 12. Who's Demetrius? Well, let's find out. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. He's living a life in accordance with the truth. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So you got a contrast between Diotrephes and Demetrius. You got in the church, you got the authentic, and you got the counterfeit. You got the good, and you got the evil. You got a true servant, and you got a savage wolf. By the way, what do you think this doctor, if he was this way in the church, what do you think he was like at home? I bet you his kids couldn't wait to grow up and get out of the house. He was a petty, two-bit tyrant. You think he lived with his wife in an understanding way? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Hey, listen. You put, on, you put your best foot forward at church. This guy was hell in the church. He was evil in the church. If he's evil in the church, what's he like at home? When someone loves to be first, let's get that again. They're selfish, they're self-centered, they're self-seeking, self-promoting. There's another term that would apply. It's the term selfish ambition. Flip over to Philippians chapter 1. Paul's in jail as he often is. He says in verse 12 of Philippians 1, I want you to know, brother, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Wow, greatest preacher is locked up? Yeah, but you can't lock up the gospel. And he goes on and explains it. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. These uh, Praetorian Guard were the cream of the cream in, uh, in the Roman Empire. They were the top soldiers. Uh, the, the Roman Senate was made up of former Praetorian Guards. I mean, these guys were the studs. Uh, And in this imprisonment, a Praetorian guard was chained to the Apostle Paul for eight hours, and then there'd be a shift change, and then another guard would be chained to Paul. As Ray Sedman pointed out years ago, Paul wasn't chained to the Praetorian guard. The Praetorian guard was chained to Paul, and they couldn't get away from him. And one by one, they started coming to Christ. 14, Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Now watch this. Watch this. Some to be sure... He's locked up. The only place he can preach is inside. Some to be sure are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives. Thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Selfish ambition. So you get guys whose motives are wrong in preaching the gospel because their motive is to in some way hurt Paul and in some other way to elevate themselves. I'll show this to you in a minute. But note what Paul says in verse 18. What then? only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth Christ is proclaimed and in this rejoice. Paul says, hey, basically, I don't care what their motives are. If they're preaching Christ, I praise God. There are guys out there preaching the gospel who are evil. Who are who are full of selfish ambition. They're out there. And every once in a while one of them will get exposed and we're all shocked and all that, and it's just a ruse, they're actors but they're preaching the gospel. It's interesting, Diotrephes is not censured for being off theologically. He wasn't in the Gnosticism. He wasn't a Judaizer like he had in Galatians. Doctrinally, he was fine. These guys are preaching the gospel accurately, but their lives are a train wreck. Isn't that interesting? You say, how do you know that? Well, because... We get, we'll get some more... Let's do more research on selfish ambition. Flip over to uh, um, James chapter 3. So what is the selfish ambition stuff? It's pretty deadly, actually. It's pretty toxic. James three 14. Let's start in 13. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds... In the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have, now watch this. This explains the atrophies. This explains the two guys that I met with, the two youth guys. By the way, they preached the gospel. They preached it. The pastor who came to our church when I was in college, he preached the gospel. They all denied it by their lives. But they preach the gospel. Watch this. But if you have uh, 14 of James 3, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Now watch this. This wisdom, this selfish ambition stuff, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Is there not? Yes. When a pastor is also a male prostitute. When two gifted youth evangelists, one is sexually assaulting the girls, the other is sexually assaulting the boys. That's wicked and evil. And it comes down not from above, but it is earthly and natural and it is demonic. Where there is jealousy, jealousy, yeah, because you see, where there's selfish ambition, they just want to be up front. It's the need to lead. It's the need for applause. It's the need to have the attention on you. It's the need to be... uh, 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 appreciated. It's the need to, it's just the need to be in control and to be out front, but it's just an act. It's false. It's in the church. If you've been around a while, you've seen it. This is why we never put our eyes on people. This is why we never put men on a pedestal. There are men I admire, and I love them for their lives and the way they follow Christ. Every man is flawed, but some men are evil. So you don't elevate them. I'll never forget meeting with a guy. I'm 20 years old. There were two guys. I looked, They were in their early 40s. I'm 20. I kind of realized I'm going to go into ministry. You know, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work, and I don't think I fit, and... I couldn't figure it out but I just kind of sensed and there were two guys in ministry I kind of look up to and admire they were in their early 40s and I remember having dinner with this one guy I got to know him went to a Bible study he taught and he was known all over the country and had quite an impact and I remember uh, having dinner with him and his wife and their four kids and I remember walking away and thinking you know what? When I'm his age, I want to be just like him. And then it came out that he was a serial adulterer. And had been for years. Just a trail of women. A trail. A trail. A trail. He was a liar. The guys that worked with him for years and years, when this all started to come out, they were stunned. but he's a liar. He's an adulterer. No remorse. No repentance. This is not pleasant, but it's real. Let's check the old clock, and I see six zeros. That's not good. Not in my profession. That's not good at all. Oh, he hasn't started the clock yet. Is that it? Oh, thank you so much for that grace and mercy. We can wrap this up pretty quickly. Uh, see, here's the deal. The, 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 the general consensus in evangelical Christianity is we're always nice. We're just nice guys. Just, we just want to embrace. We want to forgive. Who am I to judge? No, no, no. I'm a sinner too. I'm a, yeah, but some are evil. And you can't be nice. The Apostle John wasn't nice with the Atreus. He said, I'm going to call attention publicly to what he's done. You have to. You have to. You cannot let this go. Brad Hamburg, a Christian counselor, has done an article called We Are Equally Sinful. We are not all equally broken or toxic. He makes a distinction here, takes a little discernment. Let me give it to you real quick. He says, Let me begin with the first sentence of the title We are all equally sinful. Whatever distinctions we make later in this article, um, Understand this, we're all sinners. There's no varsity and there's no junior varsity sinners. We're all in the same league, sinful, and in need of the same Savior, Jesus, and by the same means, repentant faith. It's the bottom line. So we're all sinners. But we're not all equally broken. Some people are broken and crushed from their childhood. I mean, crushed. And He finds it this way, and he's speaking to Christian counselors. I'm using these terms broken. Broken would refer to things for which we do not bear moral responsibility but create unique challenges for us. If you were abused as a child, uh, you've been broken for a long time. You don't bear moral responsibility for being abused, but you know what? You've been crushed. Now, others, As they've gone through life, they've had a crushing experience. But you see, some have been crushed, and that's their struggle. But there's not moral responsibility for being crushed. You understand what we're saying here. Let's talk about being toxic. Um, I want to make sure I, yeah, he's talking there about brokenness. Brokenness. One more word. He talks about advanced brokenness. Things that fit in the area of advanced brokenness are manners of aptitude, uh, perhaps being mentally challenged, okay? Physical pain, limitations, emotional regulation, challenges rooted in one's physical condition or traumatic history. Uh, your, your mind is going, Alzheimer's, Boy, that's brutal, but there's no moral responsibility. Let's talk about advanced toxicity, T-O-X-I-C-I-T-Y. Things that fit in the category of advanced toxicity are abusive, addictive, controlling, or manipulative lifestyles that not only are personally destructive, but manifest in attacking and slandering those who address their presence. That's toxic. So when my dad and the other men on the board confronted this pastor, did he say, God bless you guys, faithful to the wounds of a friend. Thank you for the rebuke. Did he say that? Are you kidding? He turned on them, spewing venom, started lying, spreading rumors about them. You see, he was toxic. He was evil. The, the two guys, that the youth guys years ago, They were as calm and cool and collected as they could be, but over the years, I have run into that other guy. He's a deceiver. He is a deceiver. This guy linked to an article, and we're going to finish with this. This article is called, Five Indicators of an Evil Heart. Here's the deal. There's evil everywhere. There's evil in the church. There's evil in Christian schools. There's evil in Christian organizations. There's evil in, there's just evil, okay? So you're gonna run into evil. As as a man following Christ, your family's going to run into some evil somewhere, sometime. As a Christian leader in a church, there's going to be evil that's going to crop up in your church. Uh, this has to be handled correctly. Leslie Vernick is a Christian counselor who's been on Focus on the Family and other other programs. She does some excellent stuff. Allow me to quote from her. As Christians counselors, pastors, and people helpers, we often have a hard time discerning between an evil heart and an ordinary sinner who misses up, who isn't perfect and full of weakness and sin. I think one of the reasons we don't see evil is because we find it so difficult to believe that evil individuals actually exist. That's why I told you a couple of those stories, because they do. We can't imagine someone deceiving us with no conscience, hurting others with no remorse, spinning outrageous fabrications to ruin someone's reputation, or pretending he or she is spiritually committed yet has no fear of God before his or her eyes. No fear of offending God. The Bible clearly tells us that among God's people there are wolves that wear sheep's clothing, Jeremiah 23, 14. It's true that every human heart is inclined towards sin, Romans 3:23 that includes evil Genesis 8:21 we all miss God's mark of moral perfection however most ordinary sinners do not happily indulge evil urges nor do we feel good about having them we feel ashamed and guilty rightly so these things are not true of the evil heart there's no remorse there's no conscience there's no repentance so here are five indicators of an evil heart. And you'll run into it. Here's the first one. Let me, let me say this for a minute. Diotrephes was not saved. He wasn't saved. There's no evidence, there's no fruit. None. You say you're judging. Uh huh. Those in the church we judge, Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged. But before you judge, you take the Douglas fir tree out of your own eye before you take the brother's splinter. Um, Man, I heard this years ago. If you're uncomfortable with judging, you can at least be a fruit inspector. Because the Bible says you'll know them by their... And if there's no fruit... Matthew 7, at the end, Lord, we did miracles in your name. Jesus said, many will come to me on the day. He didn't say a few will come to me. He said, many will come to me. Many. And say, Lord, we did works of miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did works of power in your name. And I will say to them, watch this, depart from me. I never knew you. But they look like the real thing. Evil hearts, number one. Evil hearts are experts at creating confusion and contention. They twist the facts, they mislead, they lie, they avoid taking responsibility, they deny reality, they make up stories and withhold information. And there's about 12 verses listed behind that. Number two, evil hearts are experts at fooling others with their smooth speech and flattering words. But if you look at the fruit of their lives or follow through or the follow through of their words, you will find no real evidence of godly growth or change. It's all smoke and mirrors. Psalm 50 verse 19 and many more passages. Three, evil hearts crave and demand control. And their highest authority is their own self-reference they do not submit to the authority of the word of god they do not submit to the authority of the elders they do not submit to authority period they have no fear of god they reject feedback real accountability and make up their own rules to live by they use scripture to their own advantage but ignore and reject passages that might require self-correction and repentance I've seen guys with seminary degrees, I've seen guys who write books about following Christ and knowing Christ, while committing uh, sexual assaults, it's tragic. Uh, Number four, evil hearts play on the sympathies of good-willed people, often trumping the grace card. They demand mercy, but give none themselves. They demand warmth, forgiveness, intimacy from those who they have harmed with no empathy for the pain they have caused and have no real intention of making amends or working hard to rebuild broken trust. But they demand warmth and forgiveness. Five, evil hearts have no conscience and they have no remorse. They do not struggle against sin or evil. They delight in it all the while masquerading of someone of noble character. The statement is made, and again, it's written to Christian counselors. If you're working with someone who exhibits these characteristics, it's important that you confront them head on. And it is. And they will lie, and they will trust the truth, and they'll come after you, and they will divert, and they will they, just know this, they're evil. But you hit them head on, and you expose them, and you take what's in the darkness, and you bring it into the light, and they will hate you for it. You must name the evil for what it is. They will try to um, use two tactics, additional tactics. They will try to make you believe that, number one, Their horrible actions should have no serious or painful consequences. I was talking to my mom this afternoon about that situation with that pastor 50 years ago, with my dad and the other board members. And she said, I remember when he walked into a congregational meeting and said to one of my friends, a wife of one of the board members, he looked at her and he said, I'm not so bad. The gall, I'm not so bad. They want you to believe their horrible actions should have no serious or painful consequences. When they say I'm sorry, they look to you as the pastor or Christian counselor to be their advocate for amnesty with the person they have harmed. It's amazing to me that the pastor I referred to last week, no mention of the women. The two youth guys, no mention of the lives they destroyed. Isaiah 26.10 says, But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of brightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. They're evil. The Bible tells us that talking does not wake up evil people, but painful consequences might. That's important. They have to feel painful consequences that might bring them to repentance. Tim Keller writes, if you have been the victim of a heinous crime, if you have suffered violence and the perpetrator or even the judge says, sorry, sorry, can't we just let this go? You would say, no, that would be an injustice. Your refusal would rightly have nothing to do with bitterness or vengeance. If you've been badly wronged, you know that saying sorry is never enough. Something else is required. Some kind of costly payment must be made to put things right. Secondly, the evil person will also try to get you to believe that if I talk like a gospel-believing Christian, then I am one, even if my actions don't line up with my talk. Remember, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11. Satan knows more true doctrine than you or I will ever know, but his heart is wicked. Uh, Satan knows the Bible. He knows it from cover to cover. But although he knows the truth, he does not believe it or live it. The Bible has strong words for those whose actions do not match their talk. If week after week you hear the talk, but there is no change in the walk of the person who did the harm, and especially if you are receiving feedback from the person who has been sinned against that there is continued covert harm, deceit, and manipulation, you have every reason to question that person's relationship with God. Part of our maturity as spiritual leaders is that we be trained to discern between good and evil. Why is that important? We covered that earlier. It's because evil usually pretends to be good, and without godly discernment, we can be fooled. When you confront evil, chances are good that the evil heart will stop counseling or meeting with you because the darkness hates the light, and the foolish and evil heart rejects correction, But that outcome is far better than allowing the evil heart to believe that you are on his or her side or that he's not that bad or that he's really sorry or that he's changing when, in fact, he's not. The book of Daniel says in Daniel 12.10, the wicked will continue to be wicked. This is heavy stuff, obviously. Um, I want to close with 2 Corinthians 13.5, which simply says this, test yourselves to see if you be of the faith. Examine yourselves. And you say, well, Steve, I, I believe in Christ. The demons believe. It's just not belief. It's the evidence of a changed life produced by the Holy Spirit, not by works, but by the Spirit of God. This stuff scares me. I I was recently involved in a situation where there was an intervention with a quote-unquote godly Christian leader. It didn't go well. It was wicked. It was evil. All the things I described, I saw. And so did everybody else in the room. I walked out of there, and I wept. I scare myself. I've said this before. I try to pray two things every morning. Number one, let not the foot of pride come upon me. An evil heart is proud. It's arrogant. It owes... Nothing to anyone, not even to God. Secondly, I try to pray do not let me wander from thy commandments. Test yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Examine yourselves. Is there fruit? How do you react when someone who loves you tells you the truth? Do you love Christ? Have you ever wept over your sin? A broken and contrite spirit, he will not reject. So Let's pray. Father, deliver us from hard hearts. Deliver us from being frauds. We all all have the capability. Now, Lord, we're all sinners. We all know that. But Father, never let us develop a hardness to the Holy Spirit when he convicts us. Help us to keep a tender conscience before you. When we sin and you convict us, may we not explain it or defend it or rationalize it, may we deal with it and confess our sins immediately and get it right we've harmed someone in our family, may we go make it right. Help us to watch over our hearts. Help us to love you and love your word and be grateful for brothers and sisters who will love us enough to tell us the truth when we're wrong and help us to be men enough to listen and to repent and to embrace your grace and mercy. And if there's a situation in our family, if there's a situation in a, in a church where we're involved in and evil is going unchecked, help us to be godly men who step up and protect those who have been harmed and abused. And face it down in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.